This is fantastic. It's 11 o'clock, and I get to stand up here. That's wonderful. Maybe today I'll put some minutes in the bank. Not a chance. (laughs) Why waste the golden opportunity, right? You bet. Yesterday, about 80 or maybe even as many as 90 of us traveled down to Whittier for a half-day conference with uh, Dr. Peter Jones, who's the executive director of Truth Exchange. And it was a really delightful time with Dr. Jones, and he spoke to us about the issue of pagan spiritual spiritism, I guess you'd say, pagan spirituality that is definitely on the rise in this culture. There's no question about it. It is not maybe will this happen. We are in in the age of Aquarius. And so that presents really new threats and opportunities to the gospel of Jesus Christ and, in fact, takes us back 2,000 years, really, and back into the pages of the New Testament. The issues before... Our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers and friends, indeed before the church itself, the very same issues that confronted those first century believers. So many of you went, and I think that uh, you were blessed by it. Some of you, I know, walked away a little bit scratching your head, and I just wanted to speak to that for a moment and say this, uh, don't give up. Uh, one of the uh, advantages and disadvantages of of uh, interacting with someone who is what's called a seminal thinker, that is someone who, who thinks original kinds of thoughts, is that they have trouble bringing it down and putting the cookies on the lower shelf, as it were. And uh, they work in big ideas, and, uh, and that's okay, uh, because it's our responsibility now to chew it up and to digest it and to interact with it among one another. So those 80 or 90 of you that were there, I encourage you not to just walk away from this, but to take the time and interact with each other and think about it. And I'm sure that all of you gained something from your time there. Those of you that didn't come, I I can't encourage you enough. I said it in the book review. If you're going to read one book in the year 2012, I suggest to you that you pick up the book one or two seeing a world of difference, and you read that book this year, it will absolutely open your eyes to a lot of things that are going on around you and make you better prepared, better able to share the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with an increasingly pagan nation. About 30 years ago, a man by the name of of, uh, Ken Sandy, along with a a small group of pastors and lawyers and business people formed an organization called Peacemakers Ministries. The goal of that organization was and is to encourage and to assist Christians to respond to conflict biblically. Through the years, the the ministry has flourished, driven no doubt in part by the 1991 book that Ken Sandy wrote, called The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. Beloved, if there is anything that this world lacks, it is peace. If there's anything that this world lacks, it is peace. 
In the past 100 years, the United States has fought six wars and have been engaged in numerous military conflicts all around the world. Violence is a regular way of life now in our cities, in our schools, in our workplaces, and even in our homes. Beyond that, the church of Jesus Christ, of all stripes and sizes, has proved to be a battleground for people. People who claim the name of the Prince of Peace, and yet they are engaged in incredible acts of malice and hostility one toward another. What is the source of such conflicts? Where does it all come from? I mean, the short answer to that question is sin, isn't it? Sin lies at the root. In fact, mark this down. Where sin reigns, peace is impossible. Where sin reigns, peace is impossible. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 9 together this morning. Continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. This particular section, we are, to remind you, building an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives here in this section of his sermon what is traditionally called the Beatitudes, a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and the future reward that comes to those who follow him. There is an assumption going on here that he is speaking to followers of Christ. And that means that these descriptors are true of all of those who are following Christ. Not fully, not perfectly, not the way they will ultimately be, but they are true in some at least seed form. Descriptions, an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Each of these descriptions we have, we have broken down into a three-part kind of format, and we're going to do that again this morning. Simple words, right? If you don't have them by now, you have been sleeping through the last three months of sermons. So go ahead, give them to me. Number one, designate. Number two, evaluate. Number three, cultivate. Fantastic. Close my Bible and go home. No. Okay, not a chance. So let us begin by Jesus' designation of this characteristic. What does it mean? Chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons. Sons of God. What does it mean? This verse pronounces a a blessing upon peacemakers. And with it, this, this verse challenges us to live in a way that is completely foreign to our fallen humanity. We are not by nature peacemakers, we are warriors. But Jesus says, blessed 
are the peacemakers. Well, we're going to answer the question, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And I think we need to do that. And we need to take a few minutes and we need to define the word peace. We need to define the word peace and we need to look at the inseparable link between peace and righteousness. Peace and righteousness. Because without righteousness, there can be no peace. The Scriptures use the word peace all over the place. And wherever you see it, you can be pretty much go to the bank on the reality that, that the word derives from an original Hebrew word, shalom. Even the Greek word for peace finds its meaning, essentially, its New Testament meaning in the Hebrew word, shalom. The word shalom means to be complete, to be complete or to be sound, to be complete or to be sound. It's a a completeness or a, a soundness that extends to all areas of life, to health, to human relationships, to our prosperity, and to our safety. It's a comprehensive kind of word. Peace be with you. A comprehensive term. The source of peace, the source of shalom, is none other than God Himself. God Himself. In fact, in Judges chapter 6 and verse 24, He is called Yahweh's shalom. God is peace, or the Lord is peace. The scriptures contain all kinds of promises of peace to God's children. They're all over the place. For example, in Psalm 29, verse 11, the Scripture says, The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. The Lord will bless His people with peace. God is the source. But for the wicked, there is only a promise of of turbulence and turmoil. Turmoil. Turbulence and turmoil. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. The wicked are like the tossing sea, Isaiah says, for it cannot be quieted, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You see that linkage between peace and righteousness. There is no peace for the wicked. The reason that's true is because peace can only flourish in an atmosphere of righteousness. Peace will not grow in a toxic atmosphere of wickedness and sin. It requires the the pure air of righteousness. Where sin separates, where sin prevails and it it separates man from God and, and men from each other, There is no peace. There is only a war raging because of the lust within, right? Isn't that what James says, James 4, verses 1 and 2? It is the lust within us that drives us to wage war. But God has provided a solution. God has given a solution to the the problem of peace and righteousness, and he did it by sending his Messiah. The solution is Messiah. 
It is Christ himself who established peace and righteousness through his cross. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces what? Peace. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Peace comes through Messiah. As Pastor Vince read earlier, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, He Himself, that is, Christ is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. It is in Christ that the two groups who are, who are in animosity towards one another, Jew and Gentile, are brought together in one body called the church in a relationship of peace, only through Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 19 and 20, where Paul writes there, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Peace between men, peace between man and God, peace in the universe is all dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Peace and righteousness inextricably linked together. Now Messiah has come. Peace is available through his cross. And yet, even there, we don't get the full peace that God promises. We still live in a broken world. We are still broken people. Isn't that true? We know the peace of God, but but we don't experience it like God would have us experience it. Like that which was once enjoyed by Adam and Eve and has been lost. It will take Messiah's second coming to restore the kind of peace that God desires for all of his creation. And so we look to the prophets of old where they describe this incredible time of of shalom, of biblical peace, a time of Messiah's reign. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Be reminded. Be reminded of what the Scriptures say. Isaiah 11 and beginning in verse 6. These wonderful prophecies of a coming day. So we read these. May the Spirit of God cause to well up within us a longing for that day a dissatisfaction with the, with the world as it is now, with the pain and sorrow and the anger and the turmoil that characterizes life in this broken world. Isaiah chapter 11, and beginning in verse 6. The prophet says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Recently, I was able to watch a National Geographic program on Yellowstone Park. An incredible place. I visited there once in my life. I'd love to go back. Just an amazing uh, wilderness area. In fact, uh, it was the first national wilderness area set aside in the United States by uh, order of President Ulysses S. Grant. So it goes back a long way. And indeed, it was the first national park in the world to be set aside. It's quite a place. But as I was watching this this series on Yellowstone, they, the, uh, part of the series focused on the wolves of Yellowstone and how the wolf packs have been brought back to Yellowstone. And really a good thing because it, it brings balance to the system there. But it's just amazing to me how ferocious a predator the wolves are. Hunting in packs, they will take turns running and, until they until they run down an animal far larger than themselves and then, and then just descend on it and kill it and eat it. A ferocious animal. And yet look at what Isaiah says here in verse 6. There is a time coming when the wolf will dwell with the lamb. You couldn't find greater opposites to put together here. You have one of the, one of the most fearsome predators the animal world, with one of the most docile, weak, defenseless of animals, right? The wolf and the lamb. What is the prophet talking about? He is talking about a reversal of what is known as the, as the law of fang and claw. That is a reversal of the curse upon creation in which killing and eating are the normal routines of life. There's no peace in this world, not even at the level of the animal kingdom. When the wolf packs descend, the elk tremble in fear and run. And yet, the prophet tells us there is a day coming when Messiah returns in which this planet will experience true shalom, true biblical peace. When a fearsome predator and a docile lamb will lie down one with another. The prophet Amos adds on to this. So you need to find Amos. You have to turn to the right. And you can sing if you like. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There we go. Obadiah. But we're not going to Obadiah. Just Amos. Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. I just love to hear turning pages. You know that? Sorry, you tablet users. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Amos chapter 9 and verse 13. Behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. 
I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given to them, says the Lord your God. Hmm. There is a day coming, my friends, when Messiah returns, and when he returns, he will reverse the thorns and thistles that Adam passed on to you and I, right? Genesis 3, after the fall, God says to him, Adam, by the sweat of your brow, by the toil of your hands, you will, you will work the ground, and yet it will not yield itself to you easily. Instead, it will be thorns and thistles. And we can identify, can't we? We work hard, and yet we are frustrated so often in the very work we do. But it will not always be that way, my friends. Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will bring about such a reversal of the circumstances of life that it says the plowman will overtake the reaper. You understand what that means? That means they will still be picking the fruit when it's time to plow the ground for the next planting. It will be so abundant. There will be no end to the prosperity that this earth will produce when Messiah's reign of peace is once again upon us. You can keep turning to find Micah. Just keep turning to the right there a little bit. Micah chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. Micah chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. And he, that is Messiah, verse 3, will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Oh, for the day. Oh, for the day when this world is not racked by military conflict. When violence is, is not the norm. Again, a, a reversal here. Of what we read in Genesis chapter 6 and, and verse 11, that the earth was filled with violence to the point where God once washed it clean. We're in the same place. We're in the same place. This world should be washed clean for its violence, and yet God holds back His hand of judgment. But there is a day coming, friends. There is a day coming when no longer will the nations engage in war. But it is not this day. We continue with our political treaties with our United Nations, with our international dialogues, and yet we grow increasingly violent. Oh, how this world longs for shalom, for peace. When Messiah returns, he will deliver peace. But in the meantime, Matthew chapter 5 
Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Until Messiah returns, we have a role to play in this world. We have a responsibility to fulfill. We are the peacemakers of this world. Now, being a peacemaker has blessings associated with it, to be sure. But it also has hardships. It also has hardships. Begins with the blessings, for they shall be called sons of God, verse 9. For they shall be called sons of God. This expression, sons of, is a, is a Semitic idiom. It's a, it's a way to, to communicate something. And what it's communicating is, is essentially the idea that, that if you are a son of something, that you, that you share the nature of that thing that you are a son of. It's called a Semitic idiom. It's just a, a figure of speech. For example, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, we see that it's used again. He says, verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. As you you love your enemy and and pray for those who persecute you, you share the the nature of God in His goodness. That's what Matthew or Jesus is saying here. Expressions used over in chapter 8. Verse 12. Actually, pick it up in verse 11. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. Sons of the kingdom. What's he talking about there? He's talking about those that that share the physical nature of Abraham. They share Abraham's physical nature. They are Jews, sons of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. Well, not 36, that's for sure. Hate it when I do that. Oh, well, pass over it. I'll fix it and send it to you if you're interested. Matthew 23, 31. 23, 31. Here he's talking to that generation. Scribes and the Pharisees, verse 27, where he says, Woe to you, hypocrites! Then out of verse 31, he says, You testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Again, you, you share the nature of those in the past who actually murdered the prophets of God. You're not after the things of God. So this, this idea back here in chapter 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called those who share the nature of God. That is, they will have a a family resemblance to God. 
as God is the source of peace, they become conduits of peace. They are like their God. And because that is true, they will enter into his kingdom. They will be invited to spend eternity in that place that we read about in the prophets. There's tremendous blessing in being a peacemaker, but there's a lot of hardship involved. Being a peacemaker involves a lot of hardship. You're signing up for a difficult life. In fact, contextually, in verse 10, the next statement, the next blessing, speaks about those who have been persecuted, right, for righteousness. To be a peacemaker is to sign yourself up for persecution. They go hand in hand. There is hardship. And the reason there is hardship associated with being a peacemaker is because the world doesn't want peace on God's terms. They want peace their own way. They are like the leaders of, the, of Jeremiah's day when he said to them, peace, peace, but there is no peace, right? That's what they were proclaiming. Because they deal falsely and heal people's brokenness superficially. He could be talking about the leaders of our own day. We're in an election year. We will hear a lot about peace, peace. But my friends, there is no peace. There is no peace. Because they deal falsely and they heal people's brokenness superficially. They promise us peace and at the same time won't deal with unrighteousness. There's no peace in that. Interesting, later in Matthew's Gospel here, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus makes a statement that almost appears contradictory. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you were the prince of peace. I thought, blessed are the peacemakers. What, what do you mean you, you didn't come to bring peace but a sword? <laughs> the reason that's true is because when Jesus came, he proclaimed the reality that the only path of peace runs right to the foot of his cross. And people don't want it that way. They don't want that kind of peace. It is only in the cross of Jesus Christ that righteousness and peace kissed. Psalm 85, verse 10. It is the cross of Christ, and that cross brings division, separation, anger, hostility. Verse 35, it sets family members against one another. The most intimate of human relationships. There is no peace outside of the cross of Christ. Yet the temptation is constantly before us to try to achieve peace without dealing with sin. And it's an exercise in futility. It's an absolute exercise in futility, and yet we all try it. We all try it. We try to achieve peace with one another without dealing with our sin. We try to achieve peace with God without dealing with our sin. Making peace, my friends, is not appeasement, but reconciliation. 
It is not appeasement, but reconciliation. There can be no compromise with evil. None. September 30th, 1938, upon returning from a meeting with Adolf Hitler, the English Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain stood outside of 10 Downing Street and he said the following, quote, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time." We thank you from the bottom of your hearts. And now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. The next day, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. And World War II was on. There is no peace with appeasement. There is no peace without dealing with evil. There is no peace without reconciliation. The plant of peace cannot and will not grow in the toxic atmosphere of wickedness. The path of peace runs directly to the foot of the cross. Time to evaluate. Time to evaluate. Where do you stand? Where is peace missing in my life? Where is this reality that I am called a peacemaker? I'm a a child of God. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says, I am a peacemaker. So what does it look like in, in my life? What are the characteristics of a peacemaker? What are the characteristics of a peacemaker? Well, I have a few of them for us. Number one, a peacemaker is himself at peace with God through the gospel. It starts there. A peacemaker is himself at peace with God through the gospel. Why? Because there's no peace without reconciliation, and there's no reconciliation with God outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only as we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God in his crucifixion of Christ, his punishment of his own son on our behalf, that our sin might be dealt with. We might be reconciled to our creator. So the Apostle Paul says it this way in, in Romans chapter 5, right? Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first fruit of justification is peace with God. Paul's been hammering away on what it means to be justified. By faith in Christ, in chapter 4. He turns, chapter 5, and verse 1. Therefore, in light of the reality that that Christ stood in for you and, and that God poured out his entire wrath upon Christ in your place, therefore, having been justified, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first 
characteristic of a peacemaker is that they themselves are at peace with God. Second, the peacemaker is on a mission for Christ. Peacemaker is on mission for Christ. Carrying the same gospel to others. Peacemakers, that's an active word. It's not blessed are the pacifists. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those that are on mission for Christ. What is that mission? What is that mission that Christ has given? I think perhaps one of its clearest expressions can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Where Paul writes there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone has become united in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by faith, if he is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. There has been a a real and substantive change in this individual. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You can almost substitute the word peace for reconciliation. Now all these things are from God who who has brought us to peace with himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of declaring peace to others. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. My friends, he has committed to us the word of peace. The word of peace. Therefore, verse 20, therefore we are to sit on the good news. Therefore we are to enjoy our status of Peace and reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. We are spokesmen for the King. We have been commissioned with a message. We are to go out and to proclaim the message as though God were making appeal through us, he says. As though God were speaking right through our mouths. We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to be at peace with God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The first fruit of justification is that we have peace with God. And that immediately puts us on a mission for Christ. And that mission is to carry that same message of peace to a world that desperately needs to hear the message. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. There is no peace. We're not passive. We are not passive. We are are to be active reconcilers of people. Third, what characterizes a peacemaker? What's a peacemaker like? 
peacemaker pursues peace with his fellow man. If we are a peacemaker, then we are committed to pursuing peace with our fellow human beings. Back to Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. By the way, the good bit of the following part of chapter 5 is the application, specific applications of these Beatitudes. Just to kind of give you a heads up of where we're going. Don't think we're going to get through these and forget them. No way. He's going to hammer them home in specific application. Verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, wait until he comes and tells you about it. Pretend that there's no, nothing between you. Look the other way. Leave the room by a different exit. Call ahead. Find out if he's going to be there so that you can make addition or alternative plans. I mean, we've got all of our ways to deal with it, don't we? If you remember that your brother has something against you, verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and first be at peace. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. To be reconciled, be at peace with your brother, and and then God is happy to receive your worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Romans 12 is the specific application of the incredible theology that Paul has spent 11 chapters pouring out, his gospel, right? Therefore, chapter 1, or Chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 18, what is the will of God? Well, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In light of the glories of the gospel and the transformation that has occurred in you, we are to put off that old way of thinking, to put on the new thinking, a renewed mind in Christ, and if possible, so far as it depends upon us, meaning no matter what it takes on our, on our part, we are to be at peace with all men. That is not passive. That is an active pursuit of peace. Well, I'll shake their hand if they'll shake mine. No. Now, sometimes it's not possible, Paul says. There are occasions when it's just not possible. But it's to be pursued actively. How do we pursue it in the church? Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And beginning in verse 15. You know, there's a great deal of misunderstanding about Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. 
Oh, yeah, this is the church discipline passage. This is the passage where you kick people out of the church. Check. No. No, this is the passage where you go to the, to the ends of the earth to be reconciled to a sinning brother. This is how far you are to go in order to be at peace. As far as it depends on you to be at peace with your brother. So it begins, verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Most, most often the conflict breaks down right there. Most often, if my brother has sinned against me, the first thing I do is tell everyone. Well, I do it under the guise of you know, wanting them to pray for me or give me advice or you know, whatever. Right? I mean, we're, we're good at being deceptive. So we'll frame it in spiritual terms. But we're looking for self-justification. He says, listen, this is a private thing. You've been, if you've been privately offended, if you have been privately offended, then you go privately and you resolve this. You be reconciled to your brother. You, you apply Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. You leave your, your offering. You don't go into the worship of God proclaiming the unity of God's people when you are not at unity. You're not at peace. You go to him. You get a result. But maybe he won't listen to you, so write him off. No. No, he doesn't listen to you. Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. I mean, it it might be that you're in the wrong. Can you imagine that? Are you serious? Yeah, we're, we're serious. You, you may be too thin-skinned in this matter. You may have misunderstood what this person has said or done. You, have attrib- you may have attributed wrong motives to him. So let's bring in some people with some wisdom who can, can help in this situation. To do what? To reconcile. To reconcile. To, to be at peace. Text goes on, verse 17, to assume at this point that the brother won't. So if he refuses to listen to them, then, then you need to tell it to the church. Why would he tell it to the church? So the church might pursue this individual for reconciliation. So the church might pray for repentance for this individual. So the church might exhort and admonish and encourage this individual to turn back to Christ, to be reconciled, to be at peace with the people of God. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, bring upon his head the ultimate pain. Put him out of the fellowship. Deny him access to the fellowship of God. Why? Because you hate him? Because you want to destroy him? No. Because you are continuing to pray that God would break his heart. 
And then he would return in repentance and be reconciled to God and at peace with God and his people. This is redemptive from beginning to end. By the way, Jesus begins an extended parable in verse 21 of the same chapter, all about the topic of what? Forgiveness. It's no accident that these two teachings are put side by side. All about forgiveness. Pursue peace. He pursues peace with his fellow man. Now, by the way, do we have to confront everything? Right? Now, let's just get into, a, let's get into the confrontational mode, you know? He's going to confront you in your sin. Yeah. No. First Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know what? You don't need to confront everything. Here's a good working principle for you. If you can overlook it, overlook it. Cover it over in love and move on. Attribute the best of motives. If it's so egregious it cannot be overlooked, if it's a, if it's a character pattern or if it's an offense that is, that is so serious that it affects the, the health and welfare of the church, then immediately, yes, you must confront it. But if not, shoot it with the fire extinguisher of love and just snuff it and move on. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be delightful? Wouldn't that be delightful if, if just that was kind of the way we operated? We're just kind of using love to just cover stuff over all the time with one another. All the little picayune things that get under our skin. And they don't amount to a hill of beans. Cover them up in love. Pursue peace with your fellow man. Four. Characteristics of a peacemaker. For he brings a calming influence to heated situations. He is a fire retardant, not an accelerator. A fire retardant. He brings a calming influence into heated situations. I mean, this is so practical stuff. This is like in family context, this is at work, this is in your neighborhood. Right? The thing, people get riled up and, and in walks the Christian peacemaker and can reduce the, the heat under the pot by 10 or 15 degrees from a rolling boil. Proverbs 15.1 A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Boy, that's so true. A gentle answer. It just calms the situation down. You walk into that situation and, yeah, maybe maybe you're agitated too. But you just respond with gentleness. And everything kind of de-escalates, right? We go from DEFCON 4 back to, you know, something that we can talk to one another again. How quickly, though, we want to go in... Right? Both guns blazing. Paul puts it in the context of the church in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. 
He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says, I implore you. I implore you to to live in a manner worthy of who you are in Christ. To bring peace to the people of God. A quote from this old Bible commentator brought us. I thought it was worthwhile here. He's commenting on this idea and he says, Peacemakers must often be content to hear bitter complaint from both sides. Must exercise great self-control. Unwearied patience and great loving tact. It must be manifestly impartial and unselfish. You know what? You can't do that without the Spirit of God in control. Without the Spirit of God in control. We walk in the fruit of the Spirit, don't we? Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. Peacemakers bring a calming influence to heated situations. You find yourself in a, in a situation that's heated, you be the, the fire retardant. Bring the, bring the heat down. Reconcile the parties. It's too hard. I don't want to. I don't want to get involved. We have to. We have to get involved. It's who we are. To refuse to get involved is, is not to be true to who we are. This is, to be a peacemaker is, is not like some advanced step of spiritual discipleship. That it's optional. It's who we are in Christ. We are peacemakers. We are at peace with God and we are to be peacemakers. We have no choice. Fifth, peacemaker prays for the return of Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. It's tucked away in the psalm. Psalm 122 in verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is shorthand. That is code. What that means is pray for the return of Messiah. There will be no peace in Jerusalem until Messiah returns. There will be an individual someday, the Bible tells us, who will appear to bring peace to Jerusalem, who will sign a peace treaty, a a non-aggression pact. And the world will fall at his feet until three and a half years later he breaks the treaty and begins to mercilessly oppress and persecute the people. He has a name. Antichrist. Antichrist. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem means pray for the return of the only one who can bring peace. 
to Jerusalem. Pray for the return of Messiah. I told you I wouldn't put anything in the bank. Point three, cultivate. How do we go about cultivating this? Well, some of the applications from last week certainly would carry over to this week. So let me just roll through this with you. I've got four simple ones for you. Four ways to to cultivate this characteristic of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, something that is true in principle, in seed form, and it needs to grow. It needs to prosper. Number one, simple one, get a hold of Ken Sandy's book and read it. Kind of novel. Read Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. I promise you, if you read it, you will learn something that you can apply. Read his book. Secondly, engage with people who need help rather than walking away. This one's big. If you you are in a situation, let's just keep it focused within the body here. If you're in a situation where, where you realize that there are people not at peace in this body, and you, you come across that situation, don't turn on your heel and walk away. Are you your brother's keeper, by the way? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. Don't turn and walk away. Seek to reconcile the parties. Be a force for mediation. Be a peacemaker. Third, open your mouth. Open your mouth and speak to people who need to hear the gospel. That is so difficult, isn't it? So difficult. And yet, we're called upon to do that to open our mouths and to speak. How will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And and how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? We have to speak. Four. Four and finally, we need to pray. We need to pray. Because all of these things are beyond our natural ability to do. All of them. Well, you could read Ken Sandy's book, I suppose. Well, you won't get anything out of it. You need the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit, right? The Spirit of peace. Pray. Can you imagine what it would be like here in the city of Upland if we were to gain a reputation in this community as peacemakers? Huh. People would want to know, what are those crazy people all about? What are they all about? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, O Lord, 
that by the cross of Jesus Christ, we have peace with you. We have been reconciled to you. And thank you, our Father, that you have given to us a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry of peace. Our Father, we come to you and ask for your Spirit's enablement to fulfill the ministry you've given to us. Father, we confess we are cowards. We confess that we are lazy. We confess that we don't want to be bothered with other people's problems. We confess, Father, that we do not love as we should. And so we ask, O Lord, for your help. We ask you to change us. We ask you to grow in us this seed of peacemaking. We ask you, Father, to do what you command of us, do for us. Enable us to be the very thing you desire us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.